This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. She apparently developed from a very early age this drive to acquire material possessions. Was she interested in acquiring these possessions through hard work, or did she have an eye out for a wealthy husband? She was definitely keeping an eye out for a husband who would earn a good living. Belle was a hard worker. I mean, even when she became a homicidal maniac, (laughs) that was kind of hard work. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked Presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author Harold Schechter has written a book about the famous female serial killer, Belle Gunness, and it's called Hell's Princess. The subtitle is Butcher of Men, and boy, is that an accurate description. Belle was a mystery more than a century ago, and she still is. But Harold's deep research has provided us with a portrait of a woman who preyed on lonely men. Where does her story start? What do you know about her from the very beginning? So there's very, very little documentary evidence or material about Belle's early years. And that would be pretty common for many immigrants in the 1800s. It's really hard to gather accurate information from that time period sometimes. And then after they become infamous, a lot of people who knew them in the past come up with stories about them that are obviously colored, very colored by their awareness of these horrible crimes. So you got to be very, very careful about that. I mean, in Belle Gunness's case, for example, they went back and interviewed some people from her hometown in Norway. Some of them remembered her as this very pious hard-working young woman, but then some people were saying, well, we always knew she was bad. (laughs) We always knew that there was this malicious side to her, so it's hard to know. But yeah, we know very, very little. I mean, she was born under very hard scrabble circumstances. Her father was a sharecropper in a little town in Norway. Belle, from a very, very early age, was set out to do all kinds of difficult farming chores and collecting wood from the local forest, you know, to keep the stove warm in the winter. And there were stories about her early life, one of which was that she was impregnated at an early age by some local aristocrat who then, when she revealed her pregnancy, beat her so severely that she miscarried. Now, again, whether or not this is true, we don't know for sure. We don't really know much about her early life until she came to America. I'm assuming there is the immigration papers. Is that where you start with her paperwork in the United States? We have a record of when she came in and how she came in? Yes, we do have that. And we have also various newspaper evidence of her living in Chicago. She came to Chicago when she was around 23 and moved in with her sister, who had emigrated several years earlier. And at that time, she was known as Bella Peterson, was the American name she adopted. She did some domestic work, which was very, very typical for young immigrants 
immigrant woman of the time. She was living in Chicago. And of course, Chicago was this booming city back then and also home to the first department stores in the United States. And Belle, apparently from an early age, developed what her sister described as this money madness. Hmm. She was very, very driven to accumulate as much money as possible. You know, you're talking about America during the Gilded Age, the 1890s, when material success was held up, you know, as the ultimate goal of American life. All of these uh, commercial goodies. Every time Belle walked through downtown Chicago, she would have seen display windows just crammed with all these seductive things. She was running this big farm on her own. She was always a hard worker, but she was definitely on the lookout for a equally hardworking husband who would help them achieve a very comfortable American lifestyle. And she found him around uh, when she was 26. So three years after she arrived in America, she married her first husband, who was a guy named Mad Sorensen, who was a night watchman at one of Chicago's big department stores. And they lived together for six years. At one point, they purchased a candy store. They made enough money at some point to purchase their own home. Both the candy store and the home, however, ended up burning down under mysterious circumstances, hmm. evidently so that Bell could collect the insurance on them. This is the beginning of it then, really, right? Criminal enterprise. Well, the real beginning is what happened to her husband, Mads, because Mads had taken out this insurance policy on his life for $2,000. And then Bell persuaded him to take out a different policy for $3,000. Hmm. Now, the $2,000 policy was set to expire on a certain day, and the $3,000 policy was set to go into effect on that same day. Oh. So like there was one day when both insurance policies were in effect so on that day, Mads came home from a hard day of work, apparently in the best of health. And then after eating the meal that uh, Belle had prepared for him, suddenly became very sick and died very suddenly. And Belle ended up collecting not the $2,000 she would have collected if he had died a day earlier or the $3,000 she would have collected if he had died a day later, but the $5,000 that were owed to her because he died on that particular day. So that was really the start. I mean, you know, her killing her first husband. But did the insurance company who did the payoff on these didn't pick up on this coincidence happening? Yeah, there was some suspicion. Some suspicion also among the doctors who were summoned to tend to on meds, but nothing was ever proven. So she got all the dough. What are we thinking the poison was that she used? Back then, acquiring poison, you know, it's just a matter of going to the local pharmacy. Yeah. But uh, there was some suspicion it might have been morphine that she had somehow gotten hold of. The female serial murderers of her time often use arsenic, but he died so suddenly that there was some suspicion she had somehow managed to administer an overdose of morphine. So Mads is dead. Now, my interest is in the jump from being greedy and wanting lots of money to then having a six-year relationship with someone, living in someone's house with him, being married and being willing to kill. How did she make that jump? Am I overthinking this? Well, you have obviously a psychopathic personality who basically relates to other human beings as objects that they can manipulate to their own advantage. Mad served his purpose to Bell, and at some point he stopped serving his purpose. And they didn't have any children. 
children together, those two? Well, that's an interesting question. They actually, at one point, not formally adopted. They had some friends, also this Norwegian couple. And the woman, the wife, had just given birth to a child a little before. And they'd already had a bunch of children. And it was becoming very, very financially hard for them to support another child. The one thing about Belle that's very interesting and also ultimately a little unnerving is that she appeared to have a genuinely powerful maternal instinct hmm. and she always wanted to have kids. It's a little unclear if she was ever able to give birth to children. Hmm. You know, she did end up having a number of children, but whether she actually gave birth to them or somehow acquired them through other means is an open question. You know, my own feeling through my own researchers is that she never gave birth to any of the children. So during her marriage to uh, Mads, this other couple gave this child, a little girl named Jenny, into the permanent care of Belle and Mads. Hmm. At that point, Belle didn't have any kids, and she somehow persuaded this friend of hers to turn this child over to her. And Belle raised her until she was 16. And then there were a couple of other young kids. What's so interesting is when we talk about anybody who has psychopathy, it's that the people who are in their lives are there to serve a purpose and they can be discarded. I wonder why she had this maternal instinct. At the end, you know, she made a will leaving all of her state to an orphanage in Chicago. Wow. But again, you know, her maternal instincts only went so far. Yeah. Well, let's get into the money. So now she has a total of $5,000 since she killed Mads. Then she probably still has remnants of the insurance from burning down, we presume, the apartment, right? And the candy store. That's a sizable amount of money. What does she do with this money? Does she upgrade her lifestyle? Well, what she does is she moves to a, a fairly sizable farm in the town of LaPorte, Indiana, which is not far from Chicago. So, yeah, I mean, in that sense, her material circumstances had improved. She was now the owner of this large, I forget exactly how many, I'm going to say 180 acres, but that might be wrong. Wow. But it was a large farm and this nice house, which had formerly been a brothel and now is turned into this, you know, very, very handsome farmhouse. And she got remarried. She got remarried to a guy that she had known before, another Norwegian immigrant named Peter Gunnis, who had boarded briefly with her and Mads at some point. So now she was living in Laporte in this nice farm with this uh, very handsome second husband, hardworking, and three children. But about six months after her marriage, her move and her marriage, her second husband, Peter Gunnis, died under even more, even more suspicious circumstances than her first husband. Nope. The story was that he, when he would come back from the fields every day, he would take off his boots and place them beside the wood-burning stove in the kitchen to warm them up and dry them out. And according to Bell's story, after dinner, he had stooped over to retrieve his boots. Uh -oh. <laughs> and somehow when he stood up, he dislodged this meat grinder, this sausage grinder <gasps> that was uh, on the edge of the stove, and it fell on his head and killed him. Oh, now, again, gosh. this aroused a lot of suspicion yeah. because nobody could think of an instant in which somebody had knocked over a sausage grinder and it killed them. Yeah. So there was an investigation. But again, you know, nothing could be proved. Jenny, the young girl that 
Bell had taken in as an infant, who at that time was something like 13, maybe 12, corroborated the story. Hmm. So Bell came into even more insurance money, and she was now a widow for the second time and the owner of this very handsome, large farm. So yeah, to go back to your earlier question, it's clear that she wasn't driven purely by mercenary motives, because if that were the case, she would then not have embarked on the criminal spree something else was going on. Well, what's so interesting about Belle so far is that she's using various techniques already, right? So it seems like it would probably be just as easy to poison Peter like she did Mads. Yeah. But she's using a different technique, right? So she's obviously becoming more enterprising. She could have stayed in Chicago with that money, and she decided to retreat back to a farm and back to hard work. I mean, this does go back to her being someone who's resilient and willing to put in hard work. Well, I mean, she was you know, she was a farm girl. And uh, even though the era we're talking about saw the very rapid urbanization of American society, still a majority of the population lived, you know, were farmers. There was this migration, mass migration from farms among the younger generation, particularly to the cities. You know, but farming was still uh, obviously a major economic enterprise. So. so Peter is gone. How old is she? She's 42. Yeah. So she's 42. She's got kids living with her. Yeah. What happens next with her? How long is she alone? Is she on her own? Well, yes, but not for very long. She began placing matrimonial ads in Norwegian language newspapers throughout the Midwest, Hmm. in which she would basically say that she was a widow who owned, actually, to have the exact wanted, a woman who owns a beautifully located and valuable farm in first-class condition wants a good and reliable man as partner in same. Some little cash is required. And, so, you know, the, the ads varied a little. I mean, some of the ads also would add something to the effect of marriage as possible. So all these lonely Norwegian bachelors lured, well, they would begin to write her. She started receiving I can't even remember, but she would, the mailman later testified, you know, that she might get four or five letters a day from people answering these ads. And she would go through them. She would be looking for particular characteristics or features. Like, for example, one thing that was very important to her was that these prospective partners, husbands, didn't have a lot of close family. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) No one to look for them. Yeah. So they would strike up a correspondence and she would describe herself and talk about what a great cook she was. You know, it's the way to a man's heart is through his stomach thing. Mm-hmm. You know, she'd also sometimes make rather suggestive comments in terms of the warm relationship they would have. Oh. <laughs> You're so polite, Harold. <laughs> yeah, she would lure these guys to the farm, instructing them to bring their life savings And then they would show up and immediately disappear. And she would always have some good excuse as to why they didn't hang around for very long. They were suddenly called away because a relative was ill or whatever. Nobody knows for sure how many lonely Norwegian bachelors showed up and disappeared. But we know it was at a minimum a dozen. Jenny is the eldest child. Is that right? Yes. Do you think Jenny knew about this? How could she not have known something was going on? Yeah, well, the evidence suggests that she did figure something out, which is why she herself suddenly disappeared. 
when she was about 16, she had began going with this young man. And one day this guy showed up to take Jenny out somewhere and she was not there. And, and Bell informed him that Jenny had gone off to California to enter into a seminary. Hmm. But as was subsequently discovered, Bell killed Jenny. And the inference is that Jenny had become aware of what was going on, possibly had even witnessed some of Bell's post-mortem activities. What Bell would do, she'd murder these guys. She would apparently, while feeding them this lavish Norwegian meal she had promised them, spiked it with some kind of poison. Mm -hmm. And then that night, when the men were treated to bed feeling ill, bludgeoned them to death, and then dragged their bodies to the cellar and butchered them, dismember them, and then bury the pieces in her hog lot. And there's some indication that Jenny might have even witnessed one of these post-mortem dissections. How would we know that Jenny knows anything? Besides, obviously, she's disappeared. There was some suggestion she might have said something to her boyfriend about oh, some suspicious okay. activities going on and you know, with her mother. So let's not gloss over the disposal method, which is, <laughs> I mean, horrific to dismember someone First, let's talk about that. I've talked to Paul Holes about this quite a bit, about how dismembering, what it does, and how she used it effectively. But first of all, I don't want to fall into the category of people who are incredulous that a woman would do this, but I am shocked that a woman, even a farm woman, would do something like this. So how do you even, as the writer, wrap your head around this vision of Belle Gunness dismembering these men wearing the dress... <laughs> One of the dresses that we've seen her photographed. I mean, it just seems incredible to me. Well, my guess is she was probably wearing an apron, <laughs> but <laughs> I try not to wrap my head too much. One of the things that attracted me to the Bell Gunness case to begin with, I'd become very interested years ago in the whole phenomenon of female serial murder at a time when the received wisdom was there was no such thing as female serial murder. The Aileen Warnos was the first female serial killer. And in doing research on an earlier book, I realized that there have been many, many female serial killers. They just tend to commit their crimes in different ways from male serial killers. The culture critic Camille Paglia says that there are no women Jack the Rippers, which is true, but that doesn't mean there are no women serial killers. It just means that women tend to commit their crimes in different ways than men do. And generally speaking, most of the notorious female serial killers in the 19th century were poisoners. And I also came to realize that, in a way, the victims of these women, Lydia Sherman, Sarah Jane Robinson, and Jane Toppin, who I wrote my book about and who was listed at one point in the Guinness Book of World Records as America's most prolific serial killer before John Wayne Gacy, but their victims suffered more agonies than Jack the Ripper's did. Jack the Ripper dispatched his victims very, very swiftly. All of his atrocities were committed post-mortem. You know, where some of these serial killers, like Jane Toppin, took this incredible perverse pleasure in prolonging the suffering of their victims. What struck me as unique about Bell Gunness is exactly what you were raising, that she killed them, but then violated their bodies in this way, butchered their bodies. That's probably not unique. I mean, I know it's not unique, but still very, very unusual for a female to do that. And again, here, to my mind, it has very little to do with monetary motives. So at what point does the farmhand come in? Does that relationship happen while Jenny is still alive or does that happen after Jenny is gone? There was a, a local jack-of-all-trades named Ray Lanthier who Bell hired to be a farmhand. And also, as she apparently did with other previous farmhands, she took them to her bed. They became lovers. And 
and Ray became convinced that they were going to get married and that he was going to become co-owner of this farm. And then Bell got a response to one of her advertisements from a guy named Andrew Hagelian, who was this Norwegian farmer. And Bell engaged in this lengthy correspondence with him, which still survives. She becomes increasingly seductive, promising him all these culinary and carnal delights. <laughs> you know, he keeps telling her he's going to show up at some point, and then something holds him up. He had his own farm and his own business that he had to dispose of and so on. But he finally arrives in Laporte, and at the same moment he did, Bell banishes Ray from her house hmm. because he'd been occupying this bedroom adjacent to hers. Mm -hmm. And Hegelian moves in. Bell had also instructed him, you know, not to tell anybody that he was coming to Laporte to marry her and also to bring all his life savings. Mm -hmm. Hegelian didn't show up with the money. He had to have it transferred to this bank in Laporte. So they were together for a couple of days until the money was in his hands and then in her hands, and then he disappeared. Over the next period, Bell and Ray developed this very, very, very belligerent relationship to the point where she tries to have him arrested for trespassing. She tries to get him consigned to an insane asylum. Wow. She's trying to get rid of Ray. But why doesn't she get rid of him the way that she's gotten rid of everybody else? Why is Ray any different? Well, he wasn't living there anymore. He had moved out. That's why she tried to arrest him for trespassing, hmm. because at one point he tried to come back and get the possessions he had left. So what happened was that despite her explicit instructions, Helgelian had mentioned to his brother that he was going off on this trip to Laporte. And the brother discovered some letters from Bell and, and realized he had gone off to marry Bell Gunnis in Laporte. So the brother travels to Laporte and is poking around. And Bell, at this point, is aware her murdering days were over, you know, that she's begun to arouse his suspicion. A fire breaks out in Bell's farmhouse, and the entire house is burned down to the foundations. The only thing left is this cellar. And when the embers cool sufficiently, the townspeople and, and I guess what we would now call first responders discover in the charred remains of the basement, four corpses, three children, and the torso of this woman. The children's corpses are all lying arranged around the body of the woman. And the initial newspaper accounts of the crime portray Bell as kind of hero. Mm -hmm. that this fire had broken out in the middle of the night. She had tried rescuing the children, clutched the children to her bosom. The house collapsed. They all died together. The one odd feature was that the woman's body, there was no head to the woman's body. Ugh. And there was no skull. There was nothing. It was just this headless corpse. Meanwhile, Helgelian's brother, this was post-fire, you know, he's still convinced that something happened to his brother there. He starts poking around the property and he comes to the soft spot and he digs it up and much to his horror, discovers the butchered remains of his brother. Oh, gosh. So then other searches are brought in, and they dig up about a dozen graves, each one of which contained the dismembered decomposed bodies of one of these lonely Norwegian bachelors, except one which contained the butchered remains of Jenny. So this becomes this huge, 
huge story. This woman had been running this murder farm, and Bell Gunness's farm becomes this incredible tourist attraction. Gross. The reports are like 20,000 people showed up on the Sunday after the discovery of all these corpses. I mean, it's always been the case. There wasn't just then notorious murder sites going back as far as we know, at least to the 1700s. Documentary evidence have always attracted tourists and souvenir hunters. In our own country, for example, there was this serial killer family called the Benders. When their crimes were discovered, People descended on the place and reduced their little tavern to splinters because everybody wanted a souvenir. It's nothing new. I mean, back in the 18th century, one of the perks of being a hangman was that you got to keep the noose that was used to execute the criminal. And they used to cut it up into one-inch pieces and sell them as souvenirs. Oh, gosh. And in our own time, one of the books I wrote was about Ed Gein, Mm -hmm. the original Norman Bates. The townspeople knew that his house was going to become this big tourist attraction. They burnt it down right away. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't unique to that time. The sites of uh, notorious crimes have always attracted sightseers and really continue to do so. I believe that the apartment building that Jeffrey Dahmer committed his crimes in had to be torn down. So, so if we revisit the crime scene, there are... Children, three children, you said, is that right? Yeah. And Jenny is also there. Yeah. And then the headless female torso, that's not Belle. Well, we don't know. I mean, that's partly why I subtitled my book, The Mystery of Belle Gunness, because that has remained an open question, whether that corpse was Belle, whether that she committed suicide, took her kids with her. She realized the end was coming. She had nowhere to go. Or, as some people believe, whether she lured some woman of roughly her stature to the farm, Hmm. killed her and uh, set her up as a kind of decoy. Nobody knows for sure. I mean, for years afterwards, going into the 1930s, there were reports that she had been spotted and so on and so forth. In the 1930s in California, there was a female poisoner named Esther Carlson, and people were convinced it was Belgonis. She died, I can't remember of what, tuberculosis or some disease, before she could be brought to trial. But they actually brought people from the port who had known Bell to California to view her corpse. And some of them swore it was Belgonis, although more recent researchers seem to prove that it wasn't. Hmm. So whether Bell survived or not is unknown. But a headless corpse, that's not suicide. I mean, that's impossible. Pretty much, right? They never recovered the head. Is that right? Some experts testified, you know, the head could have just been incinerated in the fire. It's true. Okay. I mean, what happened was, well, just to go back for a minute, I mean, Ray Lamphere, this uh, hired hand that she'd had this great falling out with, was ultimately arrested and accused of burning down the house. Yeah. Although he was acquitted of homicide, he always claimed he hadn't done it that Bell had done it. In fact, uh, and on the day of the fire, Bell had gone into town and purchased a bunch of uh, kerosene. They found the cans inside her house. So we don't know whether Bell, again, that's another part of the ambiguity of the case, whether Bell set the fire, whether Lanthier set the fire. Hmm. But during the trial of Lanthier, they brought in all these experts to try to establish whether it was in fact Bell's torso. Yeah. One of the issues was Bell topped 200 pounds. And the torso is relatively small. So there was a lot of testimony about how much a body could shrink, you know, and subjected to that much heat. 
So in my book, I have a case about a chemist who lures somebody to his lab and who's supposed to be a kind of a doppelganger and kills him and removes teeth and does all kinds of crazy things. And my book is about a forensic scientist who solves the case by, I mean, it seems pretty simple because they were different heights. Really, the big thing was that he figured out that the supposed victim, the man who was supposed to be dead, had had a tooth extracted and his dentist confirmed it. But this guy who was dead on the table had had his tooth chipped out post-mortem and he could tell by the way it had healed, right? So unfortunately, the equivalent of the forensic scientists in this time period didn't have as much to work with with the torso. So really, they were just sort of estimating, was it even possible that there was such a difference between Bell and the torso that was found? Teeth did also play a major role, finally, in the question of, uh, you know, whether it was Bell or not. Because Bell, not long before, had gone into town and had this bridge put in hmm. with some gold teeth. And the authorities knew if they could locate this bridge work, they would be able to positively identify the remains as those of Bell. And they couldn't find it. So what they did was, there happened to be in town at that time, this uh, old gold prospector, who is known, of course, as Old Klondike, <laughs> as you would want a Yukon gold inspector to be called. And he set up this whole elaborate gold panning system. And, and, and they would literally take all the ashes from the cellar and put it through this thing. Oh, wow. Searching for her teeth. Searching for teeth. And this went on for days and days and days with no results. The last day that old Klondike was on the job, he was about to go back to the actual Klondike, apparently. <laughs> like the last day in West Air, he suddenly came upon this bridge with his gold, I, I don't remember if it's one or more, there's at least one gold tooth in it. Mm -hmm. And that was presented at the trial as this unequivocal proof that the body was that of Bell. And they brought in the local dentist to identify. Now, even that, however, there was some ultimate question about because there were several eyewitnesses at the site of this operation who claimed that they saw old Klondike reach into his pocket yeah, yeah. and that he had been somehow in cahoots with a dentist who had prepared another, you know, identical bridge. How many unreliable sources can you shove into one story? <laughs> Harold, what do you think? I think I know what you think because you dropped a couple of little breadcrumbs here, but what do you think? Was that her clutching her children lovingly? Well, you know, I immodestly thought that I was going to solve this centuries-old mystery when I began the book. And at some point, I thought I had. Ultimately, I didn't. I dislike ambiguity as much as the next person, so I, I don't have a definitive answer. My feeling is, you know, I, I, by the time I got to the end of the book, it was like every time I thought one thing like that she had survived, you know, the next day I would think the other. At gunpoint, I would have to say that I do think that was probably her body. Really? Yeah. So the rest of her burned up except for the torso. Yeah, I mean, just... Again, there were so many Bell sightings afterwards. Yeah. But, you know, people are still seeing Elvis Presley, right? <laughs> so <laughs> evidently some serial murderers 
reach a point and, and they do kill themselves. I mean, a lot of people think that's what happened with Jack the Ripper, for example. Mm -hmm. They descend into such psychosis at some point. And uh, I don't think Belle would have killed her children, those three young ones they found with the body, yeah. without killing herself. Okay. Because again, she had this paradoxically maternal, which everybody who knew her testified to. That she was a good mother. That she was a good mother, up to the point she killed all her kids. <laughs> Potentially three more. Yeah, so that's my feeling. So what do you think is the lesson here with this story for her? I mean, what did you take away? Is there some sort of modern day lesson for us in Bill's story? Don't be a poisoner, don't kill your kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, all the lessons relating to the present just to me have to do with the fascination with cases like this. I mean, I don't think there's any particular lesson that you can draw from Bell's case. I mean, to assuming that she was motivated by this hatred and, and revenge that she wanted to take on the male species for the presumed abuses she suffered and humiliations he suffered as a young person. That obviously relates to a lot of things going on today. I mean, one of the things that I have come to believe in studying the cases of serial killers is that extreme childhood humiliation is often a very important factor. And we do know that Bell suffered that in her community, coming from a particularly poor family and so on and so forth. But again, I mean, there's some such profound aggression and hatred of men that it does suggest to me that uh, she was reacting to on some level, something uh, terrible that happened to her as a young woman. So it's possible to see Belle as um, a figure, you know, this female avenger. Well, I had an interesting interview with Catherine Ramslin where she and I talked about this. You know, she spent years with BTK and she and I talked a lot about Eileen Warnos. And I think we agree that all people, all writers, men and women, and myself included, are searching for answers more so with female killers than we are with men because it's more surprising. Sometimes I think that they are just bad people. And I don't know if Belle had a worse experience than anybody else, but I remember Catherine Ramsland saying, you know, if you watch the Eileen Warnos movie where it's just everything is about her childhood, it all goes back to her childhood. She said, sometimes people are just psychopaths. They just are. And if you don't give women the sort of credit that they can just be really bad and, you know, want to see people dead and remove obstacles and be cold hearted. So it's interesting, though. But, you know, with Belle, this balance between being maternal and being heartless and cold hearted, it really does. It's sort of a paradoxical thing with a maternal and psychopath don't go well together. I mean, childhood influences are important. Yeah, they are. But also, I mean, she was so hideously mistreated as an adult I mean, I do think Warnos was clearly acting out of, among other things, some revenge motive mm -hmm. on the male species. So it's impossible to know what goes into the making of the psyche of some of these people. I've said it's as hard to explain a Jeffrey Dahmer as it is to explain a Mozart. Yeah. They're just these prodigies of, in the one case, evil, and in another case, musical genius, but trying to... Uh, trace the source of what makes them, that is impossible. Well, it's interesting for me, from a woman's point of view, I look at a bell and think, I don't know if she was a man-hater. I think she wanted money. 
men were the easiest way to get it. And then she dispatched them like she would some farm animal that was no longer of use. I mean, it seemed very logical to me. That's what she would do, you know, and she was able to separate squeamishness and feelings. And it just seems very straightforward to me. Except for A, as you were suggesting earlier, she was pretty well off, particularly for a single woman at the time. And True. B, yeah. you know, there are a lot of people in America at that time who really wanted money. Particularly, again, it was a moment when the cultural idols of the time were Andrew Carnegie, you know, all these robber barons and so on. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who wanted money and so on and so forth who didn't end up murdering and butchering a dozen people and burying them in their hog lot, which was also an especially ignominious way, you know, to end up. So the money was certainly part of it. Do you think that she enjoyed it? Oh, yeah. Watching people suffer? You think she watched them? I do wonder about that. Did she watch them die? Did she stand in front of them? I mean, we're probably never going to know any of that. Well, I do think she enjoyed it. I mean, you got to enjoy something like that if you're going to do it. Yeah. You have to be getting some kind of gratification from it, right? Beyond the money. Some kind of gratification from these trusting men who you've lured to your farm with promises of conjugal delights and so on and so forth. (laughs) Then reducing them to carrion. Yeah. So in the long list of books that you've written, where does this fall for you? Was this one of your more interesting books to research? I mean, I think there are some killers that give you the heebie-jeebies more than others. At least that's true for the people people I write about. So where does Bell fall for you? I mean, partly one of the reasons I do what I do. My day job 40 years was as an academic. I got my PhD in American literature and so on and so forth. So I always loved doing research, which is a big part of the gratification for me. There's certainly been some subjects in my books who have disturbed me more than Bell Gunnis. I don't see Bell as a sadist, a sadistic lust murderer mm-hmm. in the way, for example, Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy were writing about those people or researching those people is much more disturbing to me than Bell. Again, dispatched her victims pretty quickly and so on. Mm-hmm. But it does fall into what at some point became my interest in the phenomenon of female serial murder. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Michael Burns on Florida's flat tire serial killer. Right in the summer of 1975, after I think about five or six victims were found in canals, including the two 14-year-old girls, really young girls, all being found in canals, drowned, shot. We don't know cause of death, but certainly something was happening. And when Ronnie's abduction and death occurred, I think that certainly shook people that, hey, something is going on here. Somebody's doing this. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. 
We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.